Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people who are currently working in schools, and we talk about life in their current country and dive into some specific topics. The podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People always ask what Chromebooks we recommend and what Windows laptops we recommend, and after trying literally all of them, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more info and try out some devices, please just go to gg.gg forward slash Acer Education. That's gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get right back to you. Also, the podcast is brought to you by Apps Events. We're a Google partner. We work all around the world. We've just got one piece of new information right now. This is in, in January 2021. We're a G Suite Enterprise for Education partner. That's Giuseppe. This is a bunch of premium tools available to people using Google at their schools. We can help you get set up with a free one-month trial. So please check out the link in the show notes, and we'll do that right away. And now, on to the interview. Hello, welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm here with uh, my co-host and friend, uh, John Micton. How are you doing, John? Great. Really well, Dan. Thank you. And I'm just really excited to have Dr. Arnie Bieber here. This is uh, going to be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, fantastic. So our guest is uh, Arnie Bieber, who's the director of the International School of Prague and is retiring this year after, I believe, 13 years or 14 years in, in the job. Welcome, Arnie, to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Great to see you guys and hear you. Let me make first one quick correction. I've been careful not to say retiring because that's, <laughs> there's too much finality associated with that word. Sure. So, um, and I certainly plan on doing lots of different things uh, after I leave ISP, but I'm certainly stepping away from my position as ISP director. So that is certainly the case. And it has been 13 years and actually, apparently, that's a record for the International School of Prague, which was founded in 1948. Fantastic. Well, just to be clear, I didn't mean retiring from the International School of Prague, not retiring from, from work. <laughs> okay, I definitely got to be careful with this terminology. <laughs> so, Arnie, like, John knows, knows you much better than I do. And I think what's really interesting is what John's told me about your background. You did quite a few things, and you got into education quite late. I believe you went back to university. So... Can we just kind of start from the beginning and like what you did after school? Uh, talk us through that because I think that you did some pretty interesting things. I was born and raised in New York City. I was born in Brooklyn, raised in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. And um, I come from a very orthodox religious Jewish family. So um, those folks you see with the beards and the uh, side locks and the big hats, that's where I come from. My uh, mother was born in Romania. She's a Holocaust survivor. She survived Auschwitz, lost her mother and lots of other family members. And my father was born in the States. So just to, by way of background, I come from, I'm just about first generation American, one and a half for generation American. Um, so when I left home, I got involved with lots of different things. Music has always been an important part of my life. Uh, and um, I did lots of different jobs before I got into education. I drove a taxi, I worked on a tugboat, um, and I probably had 30 other jobs. I sold shoes, I pumped gas, uh, I washed dishes and pots and pans and many, many other things uh, in between. And I don't see that as a, a deficit in my resume. I think it, uh, it helped prepare me in many ways for uh, my life as a as an educator. But that's where I started. And as I mentioned, music was a big focus for me. And so when I started uh, into university, and I started late in, into that as well, um, I did start by studying music, classical guitar and music composition and that sort of thing. Uh, I pretty quickly realized that that wasn't going to really fly in terms of making a living, that I didn't really feel like I had what it took to to pursue that to the nth degree. But again, that was certainly a big part of forming uh, who I am. And frankly, also the journey of uh, coming out of this very orthodox environment. I went to a yeshiva, which is a 
uh, parochial school, uh, religious parochial school for boys in New York and a number of different schools. And so again, even the word parochial, you can sense the the narrowness of this or the 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 uh, the, uh, the sheltered aspect of that in many ways. So a big part of my journey after I left home was to break away from all of that and to figure out things for myself. And that took a, lo a long time. And I won't go into all the ins and outs of my rebellious years, but you can imagine growing up in uh, New York City in, this, in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, what that was like. Driving a taxi was sort of like, you know, the movie Taxi Driver. It wasn't very much different from that kind of an experience, for example. So I basically looked for whatever I could do, trying to find myself along the way. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, being involved with music, I also uh, ended up uh, studying, uh, have a master, two master's degrees, one in uh, educational leadership and one in in teaching music, so I began to get more involved with the idea of teaching. I used to teach privately as a classical guitarist, and so I pursued that and then began to see a pathway because I enjoyed uh, working with people and teaching. So I saw a pathway into that, but before that I also ran a, a pretty successful catering business in New York, uh, and uh, we did uh, concessions at different broad Broadway houses and theaters in New York City, and we did all kinds of on-site catering and that sort of thing. And again, I thought that was great preparation because I had to learn a lot about running a business and finance uh, from that end of things and, and working in the private sector. So again, all useful training. But eventually I got into teaching and teaching music. I started my teaching career at uh, in the Bronx uh, at a junior... It was originally a middle school, junior high school uh, in the Bronx. I did that for three years, um, which was, you know, an eye opener, as you can imagine, although this was one of the better schools, even though it was a public school. It was one of the better uh, schools in the Bronx. And how old were you, how old were you Annie, when you started teaching? In? So um, let's see. I was about 30, early okay. 30s. So it took me a while to get to that point. Uh, I actually didn't even though um, even, I didn't go the traditional route. So, I mean, for example, my bachelor's and master's, my first master's degree I earned in uh, 1984, 85. Uh, so I was in my early 30s or late 20s by then. Uh, and as I said, I did many other things before I decided to go back to university. I did go early on to con conservatory uh, in the 70s, I went to Manhattan School of Music for a few years, and I studied classical guitar, which was a wonderful experience. And then I had quite a detour, but eventually studied music composition at Brooklyn College and then got my master's. But that was in my early 30s that I ended up really getting into education and teaching. So uh, in the Bronx, teaching for a few years, really fascinating experience. And I had this itch to go abroad, so um, I left the States and moved to uh, Munich, Germany. I had a German girlfriend at the time. I found a job at the Bavarian International School as a music teacher. After, this is after getting my first master's degree. And so I started teaching uh, instrumental and choral music, uh, as well as I taught from elementary all the way through high school, uh, IB as well. Uh, and just cut my teeth on international teaching at the Bavarian International School. I started in 1993 over there and uh, eventually broke up with my girlfriend, met my future and current wife, Marianne, who's a, a British citizen. And uh, in 1996, we moved to Caracas, Venezuela, where I worked at the uh, Colegio Internacional de Caracas starting as a music teacher and a music department chair and working my way uh, through various admin roles, curriculum coordinator, IGCSE coordinator, assistant principal, middle school principal, secondary school principal, uh, and so on. I did that over a six-year period. And then we've, uh, we intersected quite a lot of chaos in, in Venezuela. 
And I don't know if I'm going into too much uh, detail here, but you no, no, it's good. You don't. This is great. Multi sales better. People live the stories. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, Venezuela again was an amazing eye opener. We arrived in '96 with Marianne, four months pregnant, uh, and uh, so uh, giving having children in South America in uh, was fascinating as well. But it was such a wonderful experience and so different from what I started into. You know, as I mentioned, just to backtrack a little bit, uh, you know, I grew up learning all about the Holocaust through the eyes of my mother. And then living in Germany and having a German girlfriend uh, was not only a shock to her system, but was a shock to my system as well. Uh, and so there was a lot of culture shock, the first in Germany and then moving to Venezuela, such a different uh, vibe, not to mention the gorgeous weather, but, um, you know, the tropics essentially. And but we had two kids uh, born in Venezuela, Joshua and Emma. And uh, during that time, I moved from a uh, music teacher department chair into becoming a uh, administrator. By the end of our stint in Venezuela in 2002, we moved to my first headship, or director's position at the American International School of Bucharest. Uh, and that was interesting because as I mentioned, my mother was born in Romania. And so it was, I'd never been to Romania except for the interview. So that was a fascinating uh, transition where the family, two young children, Marianne and I moved to uh, Bucharest, Romania and set up shop there. And uh, this was a, a school in transition as well, had been like ISP uh, created uh, decades earlier, but had just was just moving into a brand new, beautiful uh, purpose built campus. And a big part of my job was to increase the enrollment over uh, uh, the next few years, which we did. And um, there I really was able to flex flex my leadership muscles, if you will. So back in, you know, in the early days, I always was a rather progressive uh, educator and was trying to push the envelope. But this was the first time that, if you will, I was in charge. And so the buck stopped with me, but it also meant that I could have more of an impact. And so during that time, uh, we were there for six years. It was a, another great experience, very international environment at I, AISB, uh, and eventually moved to the International School of Prague, uh, where I've been for the past 13 years. One other comment about Romania, and we can maybe get into other things, but just on a personal note, one of the things we did that was quite amazing was we traveled to the town my mother was born in and raised in until she and her family were deported to Auschwitz, a little town called Strimtura, which is in uh, an area uh, in Romania called Maramures on the Ukrainian border. So we drove there with some friends, some teacher friends with the kids, and we ended up in this town uh, where all, all of the Jews had already been deported. But, uh, you know, I was in contact with my mother who told me where to go and where to look and that sort of thing. We went to the city hall and uh, they greeted us, I think, a little nervously because they were wondering what we were doing there. I think they were worried we were trying to reclaim uh, the house my mother grew up in, which we weren't. But uh, we actually uh, met with someone who took us to the home uh, that my, mo my mother was born and raised in until they were deported. And there was a, a little old lady standing next door with a babushka on her head. I think she came up to my belly button. She was so small. Her name was Maria. And she, when, as we were walking towards this house that my mother grew up in, although the house isn't there for the property, she started yelling out the name of one of my mother's sisters. And uh, we walked up to her and were introduced. And I don't speak Romania, but we had this woman help translate. And so it turned out she was a little girl living next door to my fat, my mother's family. And um, she remembered my grandmother who I never met uh, and described her to me and told me how she was this tall, elegant lady. And she was very nice. And she used to come over every, she used to come over regularly and bring us milk because your family had a cow. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it was just this amazing connection 
It's one of the wonderful, the one of the wonders of, you know, this international world that we live in and the international school world that we were able to make this amazing connection. The kids were with us and they got to see this connection. And this woman, Maria, described to us, she invited us over and we had coffee in her, her little home. Uh, and she described remembering the day, obviously she wasn't Jewish, but she remembered the day that they round up, rounded up all the Jews and put them on horse-drawn carts and how everyone was crying and that she remembers that day. And there was this amazing connection to my past that uh, we were able to make by, by having that visit. So that was really an amazing, I guess, high point uh, in our time in Romania. What an anecdote, Arnie, and also that connection and you being able to hear the history of that event through a first-person voice. That's amazing. What a rich story. Did, did your mother ever get to come with you to, to, to Romania when you were living there? My mother actually did come to Romania. She also visited to us in Prague. And by the way, she's 97, still alive okay, and great. kicking in New York City. Um, she, um, at, in both Romania, in, in Bucharest and in Prague, not only did she visit, she never went up to the town. She didn't want to go back. She just felt it was too painful too emotional, and there wasn't anyone there for her to visit, except for a grave, a small uh, graveyard. But in both visits in Bucharest and in Prague, she made it her business to meet with the high school students and to uh, speak to them about her experiences. She felt an obligation to do that. She always did that as we were growing up. She always told me stories about what happened. So she wanted to meet, and the school wanted her to meet, obviously, with the kids. <clears throat> to again, as John says, to have this firsthand, first-person uh, eyewitness, if you will, account. And so she met with the kids in both schools, answered lots of questions, uh, and, you know, I think it was an amazing uh, educational learning experience for them. I remember when we were in Prague, um, and this was not that long ago, so she was probably in her, I think she was probably like 87, so maybe 10, 11 years ago. Uh, and she came into someone into the classroom, and uh, someone the teacher introduced her all to all the kids. And you know, my mother's a little woman; she's five foot three, and I'm over six feet tall. And I'm standing next to her, and I, I have a video of this. I'm standing next to her, and the reason I remember it so well is because I just saw it. But I'm standing next to her, and she looks at me and she says, "Why are you standing there?" And I said, "You know, I'm just trying to you know be supportive and be with you." Um, and then I pulled up a chair for her. And she said, I don't want to sit. I want to stand and go over there. I, I don't need you to stand next to me. <laughs> John actually oh, knows my mother. so she I do know me. your mother, and I can see her doing that right. because she's an amazing, amazing human being, and I feel and honored she, to have met her and spent yeah. time with her. And she stood there for over an hour just talking and answering questions. Uh, and if, uh, to give you one other little anecdote, I know this is, I mean, this is a wide-ranging conversation, but something else that really struck me. So at the, the end of the, the meeting, she was, and the kids asked lots of questions, really interesting questions, even questions like, you know, were people attracted to each other? Like, you know, how did like boys and girls deal with each other or, you know, men and women and whatever, you know? And so she answered that. But the last question she was asked was a very heavy question. She was asked if uh, one of the kids asked her if, if, if the, one of the German soldiers um, came up to you and, and asked uh, and asked you for forgiveness, what would you do? And she did, didn't miss a beat. And she gave two sort of, she said a number of things and everything she said had two meanings. So she said, well, I hope they're all dead by now. And, you know, it, it, what was interesting is I, that meant perhaps I hope they're all dead or I, they're all dead by now because they're so old. So that, that was one piece of it. And then she thought about it some more. Um, and she said, um, I remember she said, you can forgive, but you can never forget. And that was, that nice. was her answer. And, I, you know, I think those she really felt an obligation to share her experiences. Uh, and we all do this in many of our schools. We find Holocaust survivors and, uh, or survivors of other uh, atrocities and try to connect them with the kids so the kids really understand 
that these are these re these are real things that happen to real people, not just. Uh, and it's still happening. And so to make that connection is so important. And uh, I'm proud that she felt such an obligation to and responsibility to, to continue to do that. And I think that's so important. What you're saying is that the kids get a live connection with that because in this age of fake news and social media so often these stories are not firsthand and and i think you know unfortunately with many like your mother that you know that generation is around for a few more years but then we won't have those voices and i know some organizations actually have gone to record people's testimonials so we have yeah. that for posterity I yeah. think it's maybe a museum in Washington, the Holocaust Museum, did something when I was there a yeah, few the years Holocaust back. Yeah, the Holocaust Museum does it. I think also Yad Vashem in uh, Israel does In it. Israel, yeah. And yeah. I think maybe even uh, one of the Ivy Leagues, maybe it's Harvard, has their own archives of these kinds of videos. And what's poignant that you, what you said, Arnie, is that this is still happening in other places. You said atrocities, and that's the unfortunate thing. We're seeing this multiplied. We have Myanmar, we have Yemen, we have many different places. And I think we, what your mother did is so powerful and so important. And those students, and I know one of my children was in the room, so those are very poignant moments that they don't forget, and that sticks mm -hmm. with them. So yeah, wonderful anecdote. You said something at the beginning is as your Dan introduced you and you talked about your journey, you said it's not a deficit. And it's interesting because often people that are in positions and especially in education, often many have different journeys that get there. And I have a similar situation where I've done different things. Why do you think say a board of governors or a search committee might see that as a deficit while you actually said no it's not a deficit i want to make sure they know that that has happened what is the creative tension what is it that you think i'm sure you as i know you hire a lot of people what is it about those experiences that make you a better educator a better leader and why do some people think it's a deficit the um it's a great question. The, the, the tradition, the traditional, uh, the traditional perspective of school is that it's this place of academia, and obviously that's important. <clears throat> we, you know, the foundational lit literacies, as the Americans say, the three R's: reading, writing, arithmetic, <clears throat> are um, foundational literacies, and they're really important. But as John Dewey said, school isn't about life, school is life. And the idea is that when I say it's not a deficit, it's because that's real life. Um, people who only taught all of their lives or most of their lives or only been in schools in, uh, as professionals, um, they can be great educators, but their life's ex life experiences are um, defined by that by the, those those school experiences. People who've done so many other things have been out in the world and seen the world of work. They've interacted with all different walks of life, uh, uh, employed by different kinds of institutions, or. Uh, uh, had working class jobs and that sort of thing. That is the the gamut of what life is about. It's not limited to what happens inside a school. And so I, I think it's not only is it not a deficit, I think it is a positive. So for example, when I'm hiring people, I am very interested in what their life story is. I'm very interested to see what their perspective is because they're working with kids and it's not only about feeding them the curriculum. It's about learning for life, as we like to say. And um, we want kids to understand what something about what the world out there is about. And so um, I think uh, the most powerful, impactful educators are those who have had many non-educational jobs as well and have had their own their own journey to the point where they, they got to school. Now, maybe that's a little self-serving because that's my story as well. But uh, for example, uh, to narrow it a little bit, when I'm hiring uh, educators, I am interested in, in people who have worked in, the, in public schools. 
uh, not just in, in other international schools, it, because they have they come often with a very different um, outlook about what's possible. Because if you work in a public school, you've got a lot more scarcity. You've got kids from different socioeconomic levels that, that you don't find in many international schools. You also have to make do because the schools themselves don't have the resources that we have, how lucky we are with the incredible resources that we have uh, at our schools. Uh, they, many of those things don't exist in public schools, certainly in the United States, as well as many other countries. And so they've had to figure out how to make do. They've had class, classes with, you know, 30 kids. Uh, and uh, they have learned how to handle those kinds of uh, challenges. And so when they come to an international school environment, they feel so thankful and grateful and they also come with this can-do attitude because they've seen all of the other ways in which schools have functioned uh, and how they've had to make do. And so they're really excited to take full advantage of the resources and the facility. Uh, and so uh, often I find people coming from public schools, for example, they have a broader outlook uh, and they, they don't take for granted what we have to offer in the international school world. Dan, do you think in your role as an entrepreneur, you, that journey is less deficit because you want people to have multiple experiences compared to education, which is more geared to the academic? Because you, too, have had a very, you know, colorful, lot of different things you've done. What do you think as an entrepreneur when you hire people? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I didn't work for school, but I, I work for university, you know, part time uh, in Prague. I'm working university, so I've done a lot of. I've had that academic role and you know we've talked a lot john I've, I've thought about working for an international school i got offered some tech director jobs and i still think about it to be honest all the time i even talked to you about it last week john that's uh, right this. for me it's um you know most of most of our team are former educators almost everyone is a former educator and you know sometimes people like arnie maybe they want to get they get into education later in life after doing some other things sometimes people are educators and they want to try something different you know mm -hmm. so I, I i'm i'm neutral on the topic i think it's it's great to do one thing. It's great to do different things. What, what I think you shouldn't do is just do something because society says, you, you know, your family or, or your whatever peer group think you should do something. I think it's good to change. I mean, you know, we only have one life on this planet. And uh, I, I think it's great what Arnie's done. I think it's, you know, and Arnie might have two more careers or more careers in, in, the, in the future. You know, I, I mm -hmm. think uh, what he said is great. You know, it's, it's, what, it's what suits him and what suits the person. Yeah, yeah and absolutely. I was just going to add, and actually you, you obviously do work uh, indirectly for international schools yeah. you've done a lot of work with with ISP and Luxembourg and lo lots of other places and I know you continue to do that so uh, that's another way of obviously working closely with international schools and also bringing in a broader perspective yeah could I just Arnie, sorry could I one, one really quick thing Arnie just to go back to because the Venezuela thing is really interesting to me because I'm, I'm not really sure about the time but uh at one point in Venezuela, I know it was super wealthy. The Venezuelan Bolivar was like a, it was up there over Swiss franc. And, mm -hmm. and obviously they've had hyperinflation. The economy's gone to be a total mess. Um, and like, were you there at the sort of glory days or after the trouble or was it in between? It was all of the above. So, um, <laughs> so we, we started in 1996. I mean, the thing about Venezuela is that, you know, we weren't, we came at a pretty good time. However, there's such a disparity between rich and poor and they're very, very poor people and there's shanty towns and lots of crime. So even when we were there, we had to be super careful, especially with young children. We had to worry about kidnapping. And, you know, generally the, uh, the people who, uh, the teachers who worked at these uh, international schools at our school and the other major school were, had to live in these gated, gated communities and to be very, very careful. Um, the last two years we were uh, in Caracas was when uh, Hugo Chavez was uh, elected uh, socialist uh, leader. And so that created a lot of turmoil. So it made things a lot worse. Still, the country was quite rich. So uh, because he had just gotten his hands in, uh, on power and he had to negotiate with the parliament and, and you know, things were in flux. But there was a lot of uh, anxiety about him taking power. 
And so we left during the last, our last two years were his first two years and things were already starting to get bad, but we missed the worst times. I mean, now Venezuela is decimated. It's just one of the worst places on earth to be. But it, it was quite beautiful when we were there. And, you know, we would take trips to the rainforests and do all kinds of amazing uh, things and could do that relatively safely. But these days it's so incredible. The, the poverty has grown. There's been a huge uh, brain drain. I can think of a lot of the teachers that were at, at uh, our school, Colegio Internacional, even Venezuelans who left the country. And now many of them live in Florida, for example. Yeah. Wow. wow. Arnie, one of the things that we wanted to spend some time about as you engage in a new chapter and you close a chapter by SP, throughout your tenure at the International School of Prague, you've really led and been engaged with significant purposeful change in the way a school approaches learning, student voice and innovation. And this is something that I think uh, watching your goodbye video that your community had for you. You have had an Im immense impact on the school and also you have a global reputation. What have been some of your most important provocations you've experienced as an educator, as a human being, that maybe helped you curate and choreograph these changes with your leadership team and board? What were the things that happened to you that kind of said, wow, based on that, this is where my gut is. This is where I want to go. I know having been part of your leadership team, there was a lot of collaboration and input, but there are things, you were the leader, there are things that happened to you, be it through education or your life, that really helped you choreograph this and curate this because the result is absolutely outstanding. So be curious what those provocations have been for you. I love the way that question is phrased because you're asking you're 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 asking what were the provocations, uh, and you know that's a great way to put it because I do believe that you don't provoke for the sake of provoking, but you can be very intentional in your provocations in order to try to move things along, and to at least generate thinking about various issues. So I think provocations is a good term. Some people don't like it. They think they find it too um, either aggressive or um, in your face, you know, and that sort of thing. But obviously you do it with, you do it with diplomacy, but uh, you, if you are a place of learning, then you want to provoke thinking. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I was fortunate about uh, when I came to ISP is the year I arrived, the, I was uh, asked to create a new mission for the school not by myself, as you said, is very collaboratively, but I was tasked with doing that because the school sort of didn't have a, much of a mission at the time uh, that was explicit and uh, accepted by the community for whatever reason. And so I was very directly, explicitly tasked with, we need a mission. And so um, we spent a year, as you know, working collaboratively with all sectors of our community about what, what is our purpose? What is our why? Why do we exist? And we had many, many workshops. We formed a uh, representative committee of students and staff and faculty and board members. Uh, we had like 15 people on this committee, but we spent a lot of time meeting with, with different constituents and running workshops to really fully understand uh, what we were about. And getting back to your pro your provocative provocation question, um, I saw my job is also not telling the community what it was about, but I do have I do have a particular bent on the subject. So that was certainly part of the process. I wasn't agnostic about what I thought ISP should be about. And it was building on a certain tradition the school had already. I think the, it wasn't that, that formed, but it was there in the culture. Um, so we did that for a year and we came up with um, a very different approach to, um, to the mission. Uh, we came up with these three pillars and I think that they became the provocation, if you will, for the rest of the time I've been at ISP. Um, 
So the, the three pillars were to inspire, engage, and empower. Are we still on? Yeah, yeah, we're still on. Uh, Dan just stepped up. So when you're talking about those provocations and you were leading this process, you just stated that you actually had some ideas. So there was something in your own heart and your moral compass as an educator that you had gathered or garnished or had taken place, you know, something happened in your life that brought you to say, this is where education needs to go. Is there a moment or some thing that kind of pushed you and then you suddenly had, because I think one of the things as leaders, the challenge is, is if you don't have a clear compass of where your north is and you don't stick to that, however hard it is, often that then becomes the, the, the north disappears and you're kind of going everywhere. And that's one thing that, I, you know, uh, working at the PTC and looking at aspiring leaders, I, I really think if you have that compass and you really believe in it intrinsically, be it ethical, pedagogically, what was something that formed that? Because you said I was being collaborative, but I kind of knew where we had to go. I'm just curious what that was that brought that about. Um I'll answer that in one second, but I want to just clarify something that I, it's great you caught that point. But to be clear, I'm not just when I say collaborative, I'm not just saying it because that's what we're supposed to say. Um, the, the mission that was created was really formed by the school. So it wasn't like I was that out ahead of everybody else and saying, we're, this is going to be our mission. Let's all collaborate and make it so. Uh, but I, I, uh, it was about debate and arguing and discussing every single word of the mission. And the mission, I think, was the first provocation, not the, you know, it, and it's sort of the foundational provocation. Um, but I just wanted to clarify that the, what we formed, so even though I had ideas, it's not like I knew what all the words were going to be. And uh, so that was, that's what made it very collaborative. And, um, and also, I think, uh, allowed it to stand the test of time. Um, but to get to your question about what drove that way, of, that way of thinking, that perspective, and so on, um, <clears throat> part of it is probably my own life, life experiences. Um, certainly reading certain individuals, uh, certain very compelling uh, people, in this area had a, had, a, had a profound impact on me. The two that I would certainly point, pull out of, there's a lot of people I can point to uh, on many levels, but sort of the, the original sin in terms of the people that provoked me to want to continue to provoke in this area and to, to want to disrupt uh, traditional education were, uh, firstly, was John Dewey, who I mentioned earlier. And, you know, it's interesting because the guy lived 150 years ago or something, or 130 years ago, uh, the great American educator and philosopher, who uh, his writings and his work really have had a profound effect on education. And if you read him, you see how aligned his thinking was way back before very much tech, you know, you didn't, he didn't need to say, wait, he didn't need, uh, you know, computers to argue for experiential learning, for example. It's only that the, the technology we have now allows so much more to happen uh, that weren't possible in the past because it opens up our world in many ways. And like we're doing right now, where we can be in three different locations and chatting together. So he certainly had a profound effect on me, especially democracy. Uh, in, um, he had a, a piece about uh, democracy in schools, and he was a very deep thinker about what education should be about, really challenging and still challenging. You know, speaking about that provocation that lives on, the things he said way back when are still challenging. Maybe well, it's amazing how people keep quoting him like he's the new guy on the block. Uh, right. Which oh, is, God. You know... <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, certainly I've been referring to him and thinking about him for at least 40, 50 years. And, uh, you know, and, and he, people always trot him out. It's a question of really listening to what he talked about. And to and, and a lot of the research that's been done bears out what, he's been, what he said way back when. But to what extent it 
how, to what extent are we walking the talk is the big, is the big question. Uh, the other one, the, a more recent, and that was in the early 90s, was the book Punished by Rewards uh, by Alfie Cohn. So long before Dan Pink wrote, uh, what was the book uh, that? Uh, 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 Drive. Drive, right. And if you read Drive, it's, it's kind of an updated version of Punished by Rewards with updated research and that sort of thing. But really, um, I, it was, I thought, I think, still think it was his best book. And Alfie Cohn was not primarily an educator. He was writing about education. He was writing about the world of work and he was writing about parenting. And speaking of prov provocations, he was incredibly provocative and he backed up almost everything he said with research. So he didn't just say it. He said, here's the research to back up what I'm saying. Uh, attacking grades as a, a way, as, as something that um, inhibits risk-taking uh, because you end up going for the reward of the grade as opposed to actually learning uh, and having that intrinsic motivation. Uh, explaining the, the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. He talked about how behaviorism works. You know, Pavlov's dog works. If you want to, uh, it, you know, if you want to get the dog to salivate or a human being to do certain things on a superficial level, behaviorism works. You can get them to do it. But to get people to think deeply, to deeply learn, to, uh, to be able to really engage in a deep way, that, in, that extrinsic motivation is not what makes it work. Uh, and it's not, how, it's not how people learn. And then that's been updated by people like Carolyn Dweck when she talks about the growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, for example. This, 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 uh, this duel between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, that had a deeply profound effect on my thinking. And it's something that I've always uh, hearkened back to one way or another, because I think that's the core of what we struggle, what we struggle with in school. Um, because school, uh, unfortunately, school, you know, I don't want to get into the politics of it at too deep a level, but school is about compliance. School is about, yes, we want kids to learn and we want them to move into in certain socioeconomic um, pathways for in generally not skip over from one to the other. Uh, and it's designed to, to move groups, cohorts of people from different socioeconomic uh, groups uh, along a certain pathway uh, and it's a track. And so it requires a certain level of compliance uh, and that is one of the biggest challenges in school because we talk about learning, uh, but it's learning within a very structured track. Uh, and so as long as we can do it that way, it's okay. As long as we have standardized tests, as long as we have grades, as long as we have a siloed curriculum where you go from, you know, Cohorts go from math and they get up and they go to science and they get up and they go to social studies. As long as we have that level of control, um, there's a sense of safety that we're um, that we're we're producing the kinds of uh, either workers or white collar workers or intellectuals or whatever it is uh, that society wants. And it's very hard to break out of that uh, structure. So that had a profound effect on me. Well, I, I, punishment by rewards, it's terrible. I, I love it too. And we have a lovely little anecdote, Dan. Uh, Arnie and I got invited by Apple to go and present in Singapore. And we sat down and to my left was Simon Sinek and to our right was Dan Pink. <laughs> we were like, oh great, now we're going to present. So and Steve Wozniak was there too. It was That's just, right. it was like, we were like, what are we going to say? So that's just a little Dan Pink anecdote uh, uh, that we had this small. Uh, Arnie, so, you know, you have shared, I think, what's our very important aspects about this idea of, you know, being almost imprisoned by the schedules, imprisoned by years mm -hmm. of doing things and, and being extrinsic instead of intrinsic. You have brought this school to a place that other schools are looking at and like, whoa, how did this happen? 
And so often people talk about this and there are educators around the world that talk about what you talk about. They believe in it. They can sit in a room and convince you, but there is a hesitancy to jump. And that jump is the critical step to do to actually begin that journey. But so many people hesitate. And I think, Dan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that's often the case as taking risk as an entrepreneur or as a business. You just have to kind of jump and say, you know what, we're going to give it a shot. What is it, the hesitancy? Is it because outside forces become too strong? Is it because maybe as directors and school leaders like yourself, there's a point of no return where you have to say, okay, hold on here. Am I going to put my job on the line for this? You know, I'm curious what you have experienced yourself as a leader, pushing uh, board members and your community, your staff and parents to jump because everybody had to jump. Everybody had to do something differently. And you are, you know, well-respected amongst school leaders and you talk with other school leaders. What is that hesitancy? What's stopping us from doing this? Yeah, it's another really good question. I mean, certainly fear is a big factor. Uh, there's a fear factor. I also think it's the environment of schools in general, international or otherwise, and international schools tend to be more progressive environment than, than other kinds of schools, but not always. But um, I think one of the fears is, is, I mentioned that sort of socioeconomic environment that we're in. I think that's a that creates fear and a constraint because you have to deliver certain expected outcomes. So there's fear of the parent community. There's fear that parents want certain things and you better deliver what they want, uh, what they expect, um, uh, whether it's getting into certain universities or getting certain grades and that sort of thing. Um, I think it's fear of, um, I mentioned university, that's a big piece of it, especially as kids get into high school, what schools are kids going to get into and what do I need to do to prepare them? And all of those things are important. So I'm not denigrating the importance of those things. There's lots of ways to get to those things. Um, but I think primarily schools, more than other industries, are in this cocoon, their bubble, they're in a bubble of they're protected in ways that the, the outside world of work isn't. They tend to be much more conservative environments where change happens extremely slowly. And so um, I think the other big challenge is that there isn't an answer. It's not like, oh, and it's not like Arnie has the answer either. It's not like I know we need to do this or that. Um, I have their directions I think we need to go and I need to have a compass and a why and an understanding of what the research says. It's a lot easier to talk about what's wrong with schools than it is to talk about what is the solution. And every school has its own context. Um, I think the challenge and the constraint is that it's about kids. And so we're afraid to, we want to make sure we don't, we, we do right by them. We want to make sure we do right by them and not in any way hurt, hurt their, uh, what they need. And we want to give them what they need. Of course, I also believe by doing nothing or very little, we're actually, uh, we're, we're actually, it's actually a negative for kids, not a positive. So, you know, you may hear people saying you can't be guinea, you can't treat kids like guinea pigs. Absolutely not. But if you don't take um, informed risks in terms of or chances or experiments or prototyping, if you don't take it, basically understand the research and then try things, it's actually going to be to the detriment of kids because that won't prepare them for the world that they're going into. So. Uh, schools are are detached from many, often detached from the real world. You know, our mission talks about uh, providing an authentic global education or a global, if you have the order there. But that word authentic is about it being real world and connected and relevant. And, you know, um, David Perkins, the, uh, the Harvard, the head of the Harvard, uh, what used to be the head of... Um, what was the educational? Uh, Graduate School of Education? No. Yes. So he was the head and he's still with them. But, you know, he not that long ago. And this guy is, has not only a, a doctor in education, but also a doctorate in math, mathematics. And he said, and I quote or close to a quote, 95 percent of the curriculum is a waste of time. 
this is a very well-educated, and this is a math person. He'll tell you most of what you learn in math is a waste of time. He'll, he'll challenge you and say, why are kids learning the quadratic equation? What is the relevance to their learning? What is the purpose? And so um, I know I'm veering off a little bit. To your not question. at all, not it's at all. Not about all. the constraints. Um, but I, I think that the one of the big constraints is also the lack of having a clear way forward, forward and the fear of, of getting it wrong. Uh, and um, if you're an administrator, you may be the fear of losing market share in terms of having, you know, kids. I mean, ISP like like your school is a not-for-profit, and that puts us that gives us the luxury of not it, it not being about making a profit, even though we should be we should do well financially and, and be a responsible financial institution. But uh, the focus is on the mission and what we're trying to achieve. Um, but still, there's that fear. There, there's that bubble in that fear. And just to be clear, ISP, even though we've been push, trying to push the envelope, even though I've been trying to push, we've all been working together on this for a long time, we have so far to go. Schools have so far to go. And I look around the world and I can see a handful of schools that I feel uh, are, are, uh, have gotten much closer to the ideal of what we're looking for. So. Um, I think another constraint is it's easier. It's like, you know, we talk about grades, for example. Um, it's a lot easier to say that a kid is an A student or has a 90% because you can add up the grades and you can average them out and say, you're a 90, you're an 80, you're an A, you're a C. Of course, the problem is that that doesn't reflect learning. That's not, that's, that's, mathem that's a mathematical formula. It's not a reflection of real learning. And often it's a reflection of, of superficial learning, not a real deep uh, kind of learning. And, but it's easier because, because if you don't do that, and that's the way it's been done for hundreds of years, what does the alternative look like? What does meaningful feedback look like? Um, and so getting back to your other question about provocation, I think a big part of my job is not to let a necessity become a virtue, not to make a virtue out of a necessity. So there are certain things we have to do. Let's not make believe that that's, that it's necessarily the best in the best interest of kids. Let's be honest and say, we have to do certain things, whether it's grades, uh, although we've tried to, to break that, that scenario as much as possible as well, or uh, standardized tests, for example. Let's not make believe that those are virtues, that those are really the ideal. And I think in schools, we often have a tendency to take the status quo and say, well, that's what we're all about. That's what we're trying to achieve. When in fact, we know that that's not in the best interest of kids. So I think th those two sides are that the provocation of not making a virtue out of a necessity, that in and of itself is a constraint. That necessity is a constraint. And then the other external forces and in terms of how to break through that, um, it's calling a spade a spade, as I just said, um, but it's also building partnerships. It's about bringing parents and board members um, into, the, uh, into the mission of the school and into the direction of the school at every possible turn. Because you work around your parent community, you work around your board at your own peril. Um, they have to, you have to engage with them and, and tell it like it is and have those debates because they also represent that um, fear. I want my kid to get into Harvard and what are you going to do to get my kid into Harvard? And that's what it's all about. Certain people feel that way. Certain board members feel that way. And so we as leaders have to be willing to engage with them or with teachers uh, and really partner with them, partner with parents. We, you know, we've done this thing for many years called the edge in education, where we don't, when we bring in experts, when we're trying to move in certain directions, we always bring parents into the conversation. We always set up a forum where the parents are interacting with the expert about what we're trying to accomplish and letting them challenge. Uh, and, but also for them to feel like they're part of that journey. So I think that's part of the answer uh, in schools. I also think the partnerships need to go beyond inside the school community. 
I think they also need to be this sort of global partnerships, but real partnerships, not just uh, talking, but figuring out ways to implement action, to have an impact and to do things together uh, because it can be strength in numbers, you know, when, when different schools, like-minded schools can work together. Some of that has happened, but distances also get, gets in the way, right? You know, even if you can talk on Zoom or whatever, but you're still, you know, one school's in India and one school's in, in uh, you know, in Europe and other schools in, in China, well, you can only do so much together. So figuring out ways to work together and to, to build that, those, those collaborative groups, I think is really important, but it's a huge challenge. And, and also the other thing with international schools in particular is that we have some unique challenges. For example, the transient nature of our schools, the fact that you have people coming and going constantly. So if you're building on a mission, but you keep having new, new constituents and new faculty and staff coming into the school, you're, every year you have to start from scratch at the same time that you're building understanding with everybody else. Could I, uh, fantastic, Ali. I've got a quick question. I know we're getting close to the time. I want to make sure I get this one in because I think it'll be interesting for our audience. I, obviously, I've got so many questions, but I know we've got an hour. Like, you've got all kinds of people working for international schools. You know, you've got educators who are maybe looking to move on to a, you know, a leadership position. You've also got people hired locally. You know, obviously, John's helped several people, you know, move up, up to tech positions at other international schools. Like, you've, you've had a successful career by, by any standard. Like, what advice could you give maybe that people don't get from anyone else about how to be successful, build a successful career? Do you have one or more pieces of advice that you've learned from your time? Yeah, um, I, I, there are a number of things I can think of. Firstly, if you want to be a leader in an international school or any organization, then you should lead. And what I mean by that is sometimes people want to be an administrator uh, and they, it there, the attitude might be something like, I'll really start leading once I get that role or get that title. And so the reality is that you can always lead. And what's one of the things we always, always talk about uh, in our school is that everyone is a leader. You're leading from your positions. Kids need to lead and not just lead other kids. They need to lead us because we take what they can do uh, not for granted. We don't realize how far they can go if we give them the opportunity. Um, so uh, in terms of leadership kinds of roles and growing professionally, uh, you need to be a leader and we need everyone to lead. And there are all kinds of leaders. Leaders aren't just people who stand on the stage and talk uh, or exhort other people to do things. They lead by example, they can lead quietly. But that uh, actually doing the thing that you want to, you aspire to, is, is really important. Um, and the other thing is to constantly challenge yourself so that uh, I think you need to challenge your assumptions about what you believe or what you've been taught to believe about school and then uh, constantly try out new ideas uh, and do it uh, in some sort of uh, intentional way to build your practice. Um, and to um, see what really works, because that will constantly improve uh, improve what you do as an educator. I mean, those are a few of the things. Obviously, the networking and interacting with people around the world is, is uh, very, very important as well. Uh, and anyone who's passionate about what they do as an educator and does those kinds of things, I think, can definitely progress in this profession. Great. I think it's it's interesting that you brought this idea up is that we or society feels that you can only be a leader when you are a director or a CEO. And uh, there's this wonderful TEDx by Drew Dudley called Everyday Leadership. And he really says that everybody's a leader and that somehow we've, we're almost scared to lead because we've made it such a privilege and such a special thing you get after a certain while. And that actually I think what is so refreshing hearing from you, Arnie, is that it, leading doesn't mean you're in the front. You could be in the back leading or on the side. And I think mm -hmm. that's just very powerful, uh, this idea of everyday leadership. And I think that um, the job of leaders, of directors, or heads of school, or principals, is to create that autonomy, the, the, the culture of autonomy, professional autonomy, 
where if, if the school is clear about the why, why it exists, what is learning, what does learning mean at our school? So at ISP, we have learning principles, for example, uh, and other frameworks that we can follow, but then to have the trust that professionals working together uh, can, can have the space to try out new ideas and collaborate with others, as opposed to everyone having to follow along in the same script. Uh, any organization, it's not, again, not just schools. I'm a big, one of, I, one of the other uh, seminal writings that you know, John, that I, uh, you know, one of my heroes is uh, Peter Senge and the idea of, of, of the fifth discipline and the idea that we have to work together as a system, but that everyone uh, needs personal mastery uh, over their own craft. And we need to give people the professional autonomy to be able to to excel in their own area. And that's a big part of leadership. But the schools need to, um, we have to permit that to, we have to set the, the culture uh, and set the stage for people to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and what's so interesting is so many things that you're describing and talking and kind of these anecdotes and, and the different uh, pathways. You know, when I read leadership books about companies, so much transcends both uh, areas. I don't know, Dan, if you would agree, because, you know, you're a leader of a company. There's so many of these, this idea of having a mission and a clarity and a why. Would that echo with your own uh, experience? Yeah, definitely. Um I want to add something about what Arnie said, which I think is really like, in case people missed it, it's a really concrete piece of advice, which was like, if you want to be a leader, lead. I mean, I think if, when I know people, let, let's say you're applying for a leadership position at another school, the first thing they're going to look at is what, where did you enter the last school and where did you leave? Like, did you take on leadership? Maybe it wasn't just a, a leadership role, but were you coaching a sports team? Were you, I'm sure, Arnie, when you look at people, you want to see that they've shown signs of, of that leadership before they applied for the job. No question. And like you said, um, I think the other thing we need to do and it's connected to this leadership piece is think out of the box about who we hire. Yeah. And it circles all the way back to the beginning of this conversation. People can be amazing, impactful leaders, and it doesn't necessarily fit it, slot in. Uh, uh, you know, Jim Collins talks about getting the best people on the bus. You can have very powerful leaders and they can make a huge difference in your organization uh, and they should be considered even if they don't exactly, you know, fit the job description in terms of they did this check, they did this check, uh, but that they clearly proven themselves as a leader. But absolutely, you want to look for people and in your own organization, moving up within the organization, even if they're already in the school, to see that they've actually taken on leadership roles not only in name, even less importantly in name, more importantly in what kind of impact have they made. Uh, and you certainly, that's what we should all be looking for. Yeah. Arnie, thank you. This has been fantastic. And we so appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your experiences. Any parting words, any thoughts? You know, we have an international school audience. A lot of people are logging in because it has to do with directorships and leaderships. Any, you know, little wisdom as you uh, <laughs> enter the new chapter or any reflections that you think you would like to share? Yeah, I, I guess the, what I would say is that um, we need to have the courage of our convictions. And if we know something and we understand something, then we need to have figure out how to proceed. It doesn't mean just barreling ahead and ignoring all everything. It means coming up with, with smart strategies to make that change happen and not accept the status quo. Uh, so we need to have our, the courage of our convictions. And for me, I'm looking forward to the next, as they say, chapter in my life to engage with education in a new way, like ways like this, like just talking or doing uh, and interacting uh, on a broader scale, not just within one school. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, uh, to that kind of liberating feeling where I can just spread my wings and, and uh, take my ideas to different uh, constituents and, and just get the feedback uh, and see what, what people are doing around the world. And what you guys are doing is part of that. And it's really important. Uh, we need to figure out, let's leverage what we've learned from the pandemic, uh, 
from doing these kinds of things. Let's leverage it so that we can really make some change happen because uh, it would be a sad state of affairs if things just kind of uh, flatten back to where they were um, because we've learned so much uh, from all of what we've over, what's happened over the past uh, year or more. And so we need to figure out how to leverage that. There's so many learnings that we've had over the past year and a half. And I, I, if I were to maybe end with this one major learning for me, uh, something I've known, but you see how far you can go uh, based on all the work that's been done, what every, everything you've built to that point. So um, what I mean by that is the work we do day to day, we don't necessarily see the, the growth and so on, but sometimes it takes a crisis to see what we're made of and how much agility do teachers have or do administrators have or do, do community members have. Uh, but a lot of that has to do with all the work that's happened before. It doesn't just happen at that moment. Uh, and so all of that work and preparation, it, it's almost like a rehearsal for dealing with the pandemic. And that's why many of us are so proud with what how the schools have handled things. And it just proves to us about how, if we're forced to do it, we'll do it. So let's feel forced. Let's feel this imperative to make greater change. Uh, and we can do it. And I think maybe that's the, the biggest learning. We, we've, show, we've proven that we can do it, so let's do it. But let's not have a pandemic to do it, please. No, without one, <laughs> that would be better. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm just realizing 13 years ago, us three were in a room and Dan had approached me about starting apps events in the Google Education Conference. And Arnie Bieber was like, of course, let's do it. And that yeah. was in 2008. So uh, we don't have glasses, but we have virtual glasses yeah. and some virtual champagne. So no, definitely. ISP was the first school I worked with. John obviously has been instrumental in it. And now, you know, we've got 10 full-time people and, and a lot of wow. educators we work with. We ran, I mean, pre pre-COVID, a couple hundred events a year, you know, and now we're doing all kinds of things for Google Direct. So it's, it's great. I've got a lot to thank Arnie and John for, for sure. Thanks for doing this, guys. Thank you, Arnie. We wish you all the very best. You're going to, back home to New York City and we look forward and I, and I think we're going to put in our calendar in a year's time. We're going to loop back and see what kind of chaos you're creating in New York. Well, as you know, every every Monday morning, I uh, I play music on the PA system, and you, you won't be surprised to hear I played two songs today, which I'd never played before, uh, New York State of Mind and New York is My Home, just because it's my last, my last uh, PA broadcast. I thought that would be a good way to end the week. Fantastic. Well, hopefully we can get you back annually, Arnie. It was a great chat. I think, I think maybe even our best chat so far, John, so I think we definitely I agree. Oh, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. And we wish you and Marianne all the very best. Good health and enjoy the new chapter. Thanks, guys. Same to you.